Well, good morning, Austin Oaks Church family. So glad to see you. For those who are guests visiting us, my name is Brandon Ziski, the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. Our heartbeat is to help people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. And so we as a church, we witness to and testify that when you encounter Jesus, it changes everything. Amen? All right, so let's get into it this morning. I want to encourage you, grab a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 10. We're going to be continuing now in our series in Acts, and I would love to hear those pages. That's a good sound. We're analog. But if you must, you can go ahead and use your phone. That's all right. But before we get into this morning, I want to clarify what this is. This is not for you. I'm not going to do a tearjerker, you know, like come prep. Or um, don't use this to blow your nose. But if you do, there should be some others around there. But there's going to be use for this later. So hang on to it. Don't scribble on it all that kind of good stuff. Um, but I want to pray before we get into this passage because this is a weighty passage. The scriptures that we're going to be looking at this morning is one of those stories in the early church that if this didn't happen, we would have to ask the question, what would church look like today? I mean, this is one of those moments where you see the Holy Spirit leading the church into uncharted waters, where its obedience was needed, because this is a game changer. And so I feel the weight of this teaching, and I just want to pray together with you as a family to ask the Lord to speak on his behalf to us. Father, I pray that this morning that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive. Lord, I come to you in humility, basically saying, God, in my weakness, and I feel weak this morning, I ask that you would be strong. Lord, I ask that your spirit would speak a word to your church. Challenge us and convict us. Stir up faith. Help us to see what you are doing in this world. Help us to see what you're doing in the lives of people. So God, we are here for you. Speak, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Let me ask a question. Have you ever wondered what the church would have become if the Holy Spirit never came? What would church look like today if the Holy Spirit didn't guide and direct the church? Now, I know for some that's a hard question to probably answer, and that's kind of a, a sad reality because they just don't really know what it looks like to walk by the Spirit, what it looks like to be a Spirit-led church. And that's not just church. There's individuals even within the church that really don't know what that looks like or what that feels like. But let me propose to you what I believe a fair answer to that question would be, what a church would look like if the Spirit wasn't guiding it or directing it. I think the church would be a place that feels way more religious and less loving. I believe the church would look like that and feel like that. It would be a place that never rocked the boat, that never dared to get out of its comfort zone, to go into uncharted waters. I believe the church would continue to be stuck in its preservationist tendencies and build a man-made religion, stuck in its cultural biases and stereotypes. I believe at the end of the day, a church wouldn't be loving other people the way God did. That's the inevitable result. If the Holy Spirit wasn't moving and leading the church, there would be people today that would never have the opportunity to respond to Jesus. Could this be the reason why today church seems to be lacking in power, 
forgetting that the mystery and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all nations, it's for all people, where we lay down our prejudice, our biases, and our stereotypes to go where the Spirit leads? Could it be that this is the reason why the church seems to be lacking in influence and more in this preservation tendency instead of taking this front row seat and getting on the front lines and being a history maker? This is an important deal because Jesus told the church told his disciples who would be the pioneers and the leaders of the early church that he's going to go and he's excited to go because when he goes, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And because of that, they're going to be able to do greater things. And Acts chapter 1, 6 or 8, which is kind of like the catapult for this whole series, Jesus is saying to them, it's like, listen, when the Spirit comes, wait for the Spirit, then you will be empowered to be my witnesses. Well, witnesses to what? To what I have done. Well, where? Well, first in Jerusalem. And then to Judea. And you kind of would hope that sentence would end right there. Oh, Samaria. To the edge of the world. To the ends of the earth, which was the Roman Empire. Right there you get the sense that the Holy Spirit is all about leading its church. This new church into uncharted territories. What would the people do? Would the people be obedient and to follow suit to move into the uncomfortable areas? Or would it just strive to preserve what it has? So this becomes an important question for us. We have to ask this question as a church. Austin Oaks. Do we want to be a church that preserves what we have? Stays comfortable? Hangs on to our religious preferences and biases? Or are we willing to be a church that will change the course of history? It's a vital question to ask. Acts chapter 10 is a defining moment in the story of the church. This story is so incredibly important that if it didn't go down the way that it did, we have to ask the question, what church would look like today? In this story, we see this vivid, beautiful picture of the heart of God and what his movement is. We see the beautiful aspect of the multifaceted gospel on display. It's a story that we get invited to, not just to listen, but we actually get invited to to partake in, to join in. We get invited to be part of this movement, to be part of an ambassador of reconciliation, to be one that's willing to tear down the walls of hostility, to present a relationship with Jesus instead of a religion. That's what we see this morning in Acts chapter 10. So let's start with Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. This is important, okay? We have to pick up the practice of when we read scriptures that we have to try to put ourselves into the shoes of the audience then and there. Because there's a lot of cultural weight when, when this is read. Like if you would have been back in those days hearing that centurion is now a character on the pages of the scripture, you're going to feel things. You're going to feel animosity. You're going to feel tension. You see, a centurion was a leader in the Roman Empire. He controlled an outpost of at least 100 soldiers in that area to be an advocate or an ambassador of Caesar himself, whom Rome declared to be the son of God, the savior of the world. Romans saw Jews as dogs, if you went against Rome, well, they would crucify you. They don't care if they harass you. They don't care if they oppress you. If there's so much hatred between the Jews and the Romans. At Caesarea, this is a region in Judea. 
It was the epicenter of Roman cultural influence in the Middle East. They built a temple to worship Caesar Augustus there. It was part of Judea, but the Jews considered it not part of their nation because of how influenced it was by Roman rule. Cornelius, Caesarea, Centurion. Tension right here on these pages. In fact... The spark that launched the Jewish-Roman War back in AD 66 started right here in Caesarea. History tells us, penned by Josephus, that Rome massacred 20,000 Jews in Caesarea alone. They're not friends. You want to talk about cultural bias and prejudice towards each other? Very present. But the fact that Cornelius shows up, a centurion shows up on the pages of the story of the early church, starts to tell us something. It's telling us that God is in pursuit of the unexpected. A centurion is someone that nobody would ever expect that God would pursue. In fact, if you, if you weren't aware of this, centurions are oftentimes painted in a positive light in scriptures. It's not because the Jewish people, the disciples, saw centurions in a favorable light. It was more to tell us that God did. In fact, one of my favorite stories in the gospel is when Jesus was going around and a centurion came and asked for healing. And he, he basically said, just say the word. I believe if you say it because you have authority, it will happen. Jesus startles the crowd and says, I have not found anybody with the kind of faith that this Roman centurion has in all of Israel. No wonder Jesus created enemies. It was a centurion who at the foot of the cross, when Jesus breathed his last, the sky went dark, the earthquake happened. It was a centurion who said, surely he was the son of God. But the earlier followers of Jesus wanted nothing to do with them. Cornelius is an unexpected, unexpected candidate for the gospel. Verse 2 tells us that he was a devout man. He was a God-fearer. Him in his household. He was generous. He gave generously to the people. And he was a man of prayer. But surely not to Yahweh. We don't know. He was Roman. He's pluralistic. But he had a heart that feared God. And he wanted to do what was right. He wanted to please God. It's a fascinating story. Verse 3. At the ninth hour of the day, as he was praying, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror, as we all would, and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That's so beautiful. Because here's a person who has no clue about Jesus. No clue. God is at work in this world, friends. He's at work in people that you wouldn't expect God to be working in. Nobody would have pinpointed Cornelius as a candidate for the gospel, but God saw his heart that was warm. He was a God-fearer, and God sent an angel. God sees it. Your prayers and your generosity has risen up as a memorial to God. That is such a beautiful picture. God is in pursuit of all of his children at all corners of this earth, all ethnicities, all genders, everything. He loves them all because everybody's created in the image of God. Everybody carries the divine DNA of value and worth. And God is in pursuit of the unexpected. The angel continues to tell me, it's like, and now, verse 5, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. 
So he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, Cornelius knows exactly. These are Jewish names. Okay? I immediately, when I was reading this and studying this, I hit the pause button because I was like, okay, what would I do if I was Cornelius? I'd probably be like, Mr. Angel, why do I have to send for a Jewish peasant? Like, if you made this whole journey to come here, why can't you just tell me? Right? Like, that's what I would be doing. Like, okay, so what do you got to say? Why do I have to go send for someone else? Well, because God loves to work that way. God wants to know how hungry you are. He wants to know if you're going to take steps of obedience or not. Because God also wants to invite other people to partner in with what he's doing. Because not only was God at work in a Roman leader, he was also going to be at work within the early church. Because he wanted to show them something. And that's what we start to see here. So Cornelius he does exactly what the angel says. He calls two of his servants and another soldier who was also a God-fearer and said, go find this person. The fact that Cornelius did this, okay, just, again, imagine yourself being a Roman leader of an army who hate Jews. You are in a representative of Caesar. The fact that Cornelius did this, this is what we call a career suicide move. Will his men respect him? Does he have now the credibility? Does he have the cred on the street to lead this Roman? No, you're in cahoots with the Jews. You like the Jews. You, what if word got back to Caesar? Well, you'd be done. Cornelius doesn't care. God is doing something unexpected. Now watch what happens here on the other side. Acts 10 verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city... Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. It's a common thing that they would do. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Bizarre scenario. Peter goes up because he loves praying. He loves being with the Lord. He's in this time of prayer. He's hungry, which is a beautiful contrast to Cornelius, who was spiritually hungry. Peter here is physically hungry. And he goes into this trance. He gets this vision. He's in deep prayer. And all of a sudden, he sees this, this sheet falling from heaven. Super bizarre. But God has got his attention by this. It's almost this notion is as if like God was pursuing the unexpected. Now we see God nudging Peter. You're going to see how the Holy Spirit is going to nudge and prompt Peter towards the unexpected and the uncomfortable as well. Our God loves to work what I sit called dietically. He loves to work at least involving two people, at least two circumstances. It's one of those phrases that I've just hung on to as a young man. It's like the Holy Spirit always leads to life for you and for another. So if God is working here, he wanted to invite another person to see what God was doing, but it's going to shape the early church. Verse 11, he sees the sheep coming down by the four corners upon the earth. Verse 12, and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. And it's actually in the Greek tense. It's very emphatic. It's the same way that Peter said to Jesus when he was walking around to wash his feet. No, Lord, you won't wash my feet. It's like this pride a little bit in there. He's like, no, Lord. 
I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Fascinating. So what does this even mean? A sheet falls from heaven, and there's animals on it, and the Lord, to which Peter recognizes to be the voice of Jesus, says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, uh-uh, not going to happen. I've never eaten anything unclean, and I ain't going to start now. What's going on? This is a 1,400-year religious custom, a religious practice that the Jewish people upheld. God gave them these food rituals, like of what to eat and what not to eat. And oddly enough, I'm reading the Bible through a year, and which I encourage you to do as well. But unfortunately, the, the book that I'm in and the chapter in right now is the food stuff. And it's all God's word is fun. This moment, it's hard to read. You're like, oh my gosh, if it has this hoof and that hoof, if it's cleaves and this cleave, it's got a feather and flies or this candy. I'm like, oh my goodness, so thankful for grace. Hooey, <laughs> Seriously, it's exhausting. But the, they, they embraced this. The custom that God gave them was to teach them about the significance and the seriousness of sin and how sin defiles a person. And it was to teach them the significance and the seriousness of holiness, of being set apart for God's purposes. But what happens in a sinful heart because we're prideful and oftentimes insecure that creates these illusions of superiority? We turn religion into things that inevitably create prejudices in our hearts. Let me explain what I mean. The Jewish people took these food rituals over years and turned them into things that kept people in and people out. We are the uncommon you're the common. We are the clean. You're the unclean. That was not God's heart. The nation of Israel was to be a blessing to all nations. And over the years, these cultural biases and preferences, which run deep in your life as well, Peter had no idea how that influenced how he saw people. The church is going to have to learn to let go of some of its religious preferences and biases in order to move with the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening here. Because Peter, in his, in his Jewish identity, is just like, no, Lord, I will not rise and eat. Which is kind of a bold thing to do. You're dictating to Jesus. Is he testing me? No. Because he says it again. And a third time. This imagery isn't about food. Peter doesn't know that yet. He just thinks it's about food. But as we read this story and as the audience would have read the story, we would have pieced this together that God is moving in the heart of Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Now we also see in the same vein, God is prompting and nudging Peter, doing something in his heart as well. This is not about food. This is about people. And Peter doesn't make that connection yet. It's about all people, all ethnicities, male, female, all skin colors, all economic statuses. It doesn't matter where you're born or who you're born to. It represents everyone, including, including your worst enemy. But what's in the way here? A religious obstacle that has been created by man which is what God never intended for it to become. This is deeply embedded. 
in Peter. A 1,400-year practice. It was part of their identity. No, Lord, I will not eat anything that is common. Anything that is below me. Anything that would make me unholy. I will not do it. And Jesus drops the mic by saying, do not call anything common that I have made clean. That is a mic drop moment. It's not that Peter's heart is against the Gentiles. It's not like he hates them. Because we've already seen how God is moving amongst even the Samaritans at this point. But now the gospel is moving to the ends of the earth. Peter just can't get over the obstacle that's in the way. He can't see past the wall that his Jewish culture has built up over the years. A good thing that our Lord is an expert at tearing down the walls. Because watch what happens. Verse 17. While Peter was inwardly perplexed, which is another way of saying he was wrestling with God. He was seeking discernment. God, what does this mean? Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, they stood at the gate and called out to ask why their Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. This is great, okay? There's some humor to this in my mind. At least that's the way I read this. Okay, so here we go. And, they, and so, I lost my point. Sorry. Verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, as he's in this moment wrestling with God as the Holy Spirit has been nudging him and has his attention, the Spirit said to him, prompted him, revealed to him, however you want to think about it, behold, three fellas are at the door looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. Context. Peter has no idea that this vision is about people. Persecution is now rampant against Christians. Peter looks out at the gate. He sees two servants and a Roman soldier dressed in his soldier garb. Do you think Peter would have went with them? The Holy Spirit's like, hey, Peter, before you judge and assume what they're about, go with them without hesitation. He, he forewarned him. He's like, go. This is where I'm leading. So Peter comes down and he does exactly what the Spirit of the Lord put on his heart to do. He goes down and he goes, I'm the one you're looking for, verse 21. What is the reason for your coming? And they say, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Something is changing in Peter because Peter knows that what he just did was also extremely risky. To invite a Gentile, a Roman centurion, to have dinner with them and to stay overnight with him and then go to his home. Well, news would spread back to mothership in the church in Jerusalem and the church elders might have a problem with that. But here's the thing, and this is the main point of what I want to lean into this morning. What is so important for us as a church and what we see on these pages is a vital principle to be in order to be a church that changes history. Listen to Jesus and do what he says. Memorize that. Listen to Jesus and do what he says. 
we don't like to sometimes because he does lead us in these areas. He will make you confront the prejudices and the stereotypes you have in your heart towards other people, which is oftentimes why we don't like to listen to Jesus. Or even if he does put the nudge in your heart to go towards a person or to love a person or to even act in repentance for the sin in your heart, you want to dictate back to God and say, surely no, Lord. Listen to Jesus and do what he says. Both of these men got their directive by God when they were praying. Do you know that God does speak to us? God does nudge us. He does prompt us. He does stir us still. Both of these guys got the nudging while they were praying. And they both took acts of humility by choosing to be obedient. And as the story progresses, Peter rises the next day and he goes to Caesarea with these guys. Now in chapter 11, verse 12, we read that Peter brought six other companions with him, which is important because Peter knows that what he is doing is in ardent chartered waters. He knows what he's doing is very unexpected and uncomfortable and breaking every church norm that's out there right now. So he brings six other people with him because in Jewish custom, the only way to prove a valid case was to have seven witnesses of the situation. So you got six of his companions and Peter. That makes seven. So Peter's like, okay, I'm going to cover my bases because I know the word's going to hit Jerusalem church and I know I'm going to have to give account. So I'm going to bring these guys with me so they too can testify to what God is doing. So they go to Cornelius' poem. Verse 25. I want to back up verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends, which is amazing. He's so excited. He wants to have his close friends and his family hear what God might say. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up. I too am a man. This, friends, this is so beautiful. Like, I, we got to grab this. Both of these men, both, it's not just one or the other, both of these men are choosing to lay down their cultural bias and stereotypes of the other for the sake of the gospel. Both of them are doing that. The centurion, Romans hate Jews. They think they are superior. They're the, the great human race. They're the light of the world. Literally, that was their phrase they would use. And, say, and Caesar was the son of God. We will teach them. Can you imagine? Like Cornelius in that moment could have taken advantage of his position, his power, and said, it's right of you, Jewish peasant, to come when I ask. I mean, he could, like, he, he could have done this. I mean, even Peter, he could have taken advantage of the moment as well. Like as Cornelius falls at his feet, can you imagine maybe all of the anger and the hatred and the bitterness and resentment that was in his heart? How dare you? You're right. You should be at my feet begging for forgiveness for all that you've done to my people. Neither of them did it. They both laid down their cultural biases and preferences of each other for the sake of the gospel because God was working powerful. 
Cornelius sacrifices his career. Peter, he knows what's going to happen. He knows the word that's going to spread. But something significant shifted. Watch what happens. Stand up, for I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many people gathered. And he said to them, <laughs> there's like this part in Peter here, you're like, yeah, it's going to take you a while, Peter, to warm up to this. But yet there's something beautiful in this, in this statement. You, you yourselves know, okay, picture, room of Romans, right? Peter shows up, he's got his posse with him. <laughs> you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with you. It's kind of like, zing, you know, we think we're better than you. And, you know, it's kind of like you can almost imagine Cornelius and then you're like, yeah, we're better than you. But none of that is there. Something powerful happens now in Peter and what he says. So powerful. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with you or to visit anyone of another nation. God never said that to them, by the way. But God has shown me. God has shown me that I should not call anybody common, anybody unclean. This process from that vision to Cornelius' crew knocking at the door to the journey to this whole scene, something happened inside Peter. From that vision of the sheet coming down, Peter realized, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I actually had prejudice towards other people. Oh my gosh, I had no idea that my religion caused me to see other people this way. God has shown me that I should not see other people less than me. Or less value. Or unworthy of the gospel. Peter is publicly repenting to a bunch of Romans who have chosen to oppress the Jewish people. If the Holy Spirit didn't lead Peter and Cornelius to this moment, let's be honest, this would never happen. What would the church look like if the Holy Spirit wasn't leading it? And converse, what would the church look like or what should the church look like if we are following the Holy Spirit? It's a powerful moment. Powerful moment. We cannot downplay this. He's overwhelmed with what God's doing. Peter is surprised. Like, I would have never thought this would happen. And he goes off and he tells the gospel. He preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his whole family. Connecting it into dates of history. You guys know about Jesus. You know he was attested by man to be the son of God. You know he was crucified. You know he was resurrected. And you know that your crew couldn't find his body. I attest to you that he brings the good news of peace. Peter uses the word peace, which carries the word reconciliation. That there's reconciliation now between God and humanity. But not only that, the gospel is a great leveler of humanity, saying it's also reconciliation between humanity. What we've built up to divide ourselves and create all these walls and how we have allowed our cultural biases and presuppositions to distinguish and differentiate one another, God has said no more. 
That's why the New Testament says there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek, Gentile or Jew, black or white, all come on the same field. Because everybody's created in the image of God. The Imago Dei. And friends, this is the only solution to racism. This is the only solution to prejudice. This is the only solution to discrimination. Is if we believe everybody's created in the image of God. Science doesn't see value in humanity if you follow the logic. Atheism says people have no purpose. The end result is death. So, of course, we will live the way we've been living. But if everybody's created the image of God, that means every single person who is born carries with them the divine imprint of value and worth. And the gospel tears that all down. God leads to the unexpected, but he also nudges us to partner with him to move towards these unexpected areas. Where it's no longer about religion, because if you look at verse 43... Peter says, to him, all the prophecies bear witness that everyone who believes in him and receives forgiveness of sins through his name would be saved. It's no more about your cultural identity. It's no more about what you do. It's no more about your pedigree. It's no more about any of this. It's just simply receiving the gift of life through faith. So what happens then when religion is confronted by grace, when the news finally trickled and found its way to Jerusalem? What happened? Because it surely did. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 2. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. There goes the neighborhood. <laughs> like that's not, that's not like, oh cool, great headline. That's like a, what? You ever play the game Telephone. Just, I'm the guy that if you tell me, I will change it on purpose. That's just me. But like, you know the game where you like, you say it to one person and it just kind of goes, like there's no like direct line of communication. So news traveled. It, it, you know that probably because it changed into the worst form of the story because Gentiles and Romans were enemies. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went, to, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? How could you, Peter? You're God's guy. What were you thinking, Peter? And this, this phrase, the circumcision party, like these guys are assumed and implied to be followers of Jesus because they're part of the Jerusalem church. They were still stuck in the religious bias. And so Peter tells them, detail for detail, step by step, line by line, exactly what happened. He even said, you guys, right? I know. I even pushed back against Jesus and said, no, I won't do it. But how could I deny this when I was preaching? The Holy Spirit fell on them just like it fell on us, and they're speaking in tongues, and we were all amazed. We're like, what can we do? We can't get in the way of this. And praise God, church, that the church in Jerusalem here said, that's amazing. Praise God. And they rejoiced instead of saying, no, don't do it again. Peter, you're fired. We want a new leader. They rejoiced. So let's get a little personal. 
because we hear this. And we're like, man, awesome that God did that there. Thank you, because quite frankly, we're Gentiles, right? Like, we're benefactors of their obedience. But guys, we have to be honest, because sin runs deep, and our cultural biases and preferences run deep. And we don't really like to go there. So this napkin represents your sheet. And I want to challenge you. Who's on there? It could be an individual. It could be a culture. It could be an ethnicity. It could be a political party. Who's on there? These would be the people or the groups that we think are common, who we think are undeserving of the gospel. Because I, I, I believe with all my heart, because I know the Holy Spirit, that he will begin to nudge you. He will begin to nudge you. Go to him. Invite them in. Have coffee with them. Listen to them. Hear their stories. Be hospitable to them. Have queso with them. Queso's a great leveler. Torchies, though. And as you do this, I, I believe, as the Lord starts to reveal things to your heart here, you're going to need to repent. Forgive me for thinking I was better. And the church really struggles with this because we all want to have our knee-jerk reaction, be like, no, we love Jesus, we love all people. Of course I'm not racist. Of course I don't have discrimination. Of course I don't. How about you let the Holy Spirit show you the depths of your heart? Let him do that nudging. And then the question comes, will you listen to Jesus and do what he says? This is the power of God. It's the gospel. The gospel that we're not ashamed of. It's the mystery that God would bring all people together under Jesus. It's beautiful. Because there's only one problem in this world, truly. It's called sin. And there's only one solution in this world, and it's called Jesus. There's one race in this world, and it's called human. And there's one hope. It's the resurrection. We offer a relationship with Jesus, not a religion. And so we have to be willing to lay down our cultural biases for the sake of the gospel. So I want to encourage you as we end this morning, okay? We're going to do some work. We're going to spend some time practicing repentance. Let the Holy Spirit lead you and nudge you. And I want you just to write down those names, groups of people, whatever. You know, and if maybe you're not like, yeah, I don't want to do it because I don't want nobody to see. That's fine. Just do it in your heart. But let's do this time of just repentance and allowing the Lord to do that work inside of us. Let's listen to Jesus and do what he says. And after some time of just praying and reflection, let's make a declaration of moving forward Let's choose as a church 
to be a church that is going to go with the Spirit into these uncharted waters, to go into the areas that are uncomfortable, to be a church that makes history instead of trying to preserve everything, to be comfortable and safe. So Lord, I ask that you would stir in our hearts. God, and I know this was a little lengthy, but Lord, I just feel strong in my heart. You had something you wanted to say to us as a church. And so God, we ask that your spirit would have its way. Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to listen, that we have the courage to see our heart. The Lord, just like how gracious you were to Peter, because Peter wasn't even fully aware of it. You walked with him. And even so, Peter fell back. He relapsed. We see the confrontation in Galatians where Paul had to call him out again. You're long-suffering and you're gracious, and we thank you for that, God. And we know that we need to be people who move in this direction because we love you and we do love people. Help us to see the obstacles that we have created. So, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would nudge us. Speak to us. Just take this time, just you and the Lord. we are to be witnesses of this beautiful gospel testify about our beautiful savior in Jesus there is no discrimination there is no prejudice there is no elitism and there shouldn't be in our hearts either so as we identify and the spirit makes that clear to us and nudges us I want to encourage you will you in the next two weeks Take a step towards that person. Will you choose hospitality? Will you choose to listen, to move towards in whatever way? And maybe it's just simply a step where you just pray, but please don't allow prayer to be an excuse for inaction either. And I know that this is, can be a little heavy and somber, but as we recognize how the gospel works in their lives, there is cause for rejoicing. As we even see this in our own heart, we are quickly reminded how our Lord and Savior loves to forgive us and cleanse us and renew us. May we now spend this moment by faith, praising and worshiping our Lord and Savior because of the gospel. May we take our cues from the early church in Jerusalem when we hear this kind of report of how God's moving in unexpected ways that we worship him and praise God together. So let's take this time, church, together. Let's stand and worship and sing because of this beautiful and great gospel. In Jesus' name.